So we're continuing on in our sermon series. As you may recall, we're looking at Christ, sort of with it being Easter season. Certainly, we're always looking at Christ and focusing on the Lord in our sermons, but especially with it being sort of Easter season leading up to Palm Sunday next week, then Easter, we really want to focus on Christ, His ministry. Uh, and so we're looking at Christ, of course, and, and His, his uh, status as the Messiah, of course, and particularly looking at these three roles or offices of Christ as the Messiah. We've already taken a look at one of them, Jesus as prophet, right? And today we're going to be looking at the second, Jesus the Messiah as priest, carrying out that priestly role, that priestly office. And then thirdly, we're going to be doing this next week. It'll tie in great with, with Palm Sunday. We're going to be looking at Jesus the Messiah as indeed that third office of king, that third role in office of king. So prophet, priest, king. We've already taken a look at prophet. Today we're going to be looking at Jesus as priest. And really looking, we'll dig into scripture and see how uh, he truly does carry out this role, fulfill this role or office of a priest. And a good place to, to start, uh, before we even really dive into all these scriptures, we're going to be looking at a bunch of different ones. A good place to start is to say, right, uh, if we're going to be looking at Jesus as priest, well, what in a sense does it really mean to be a priest? If we're going to be looking at this office of a priest and recognizing that Jesus carries this out, well, we should start by saying, what is the office? What is the role of a priest? Right, and centrally, the role of a priest, right, you can sort of think back, think Old Testament, the whole priestly, uh, of course, sacrificial system, the priest's role in relation to that. Uh, centrally, if we think of the role of a priest, the office of a priest, it is that of a mediator, but a mediator in a different way than a prophet can serve as a mediator, right? If you sort of think back to last week and how we talked about Jesus and that role of, of being a prophet, uh, and there's a reality that a prophet is a mediator, but sort of in a communicative sense, right? Communicative sense. Uh, that's the way in which a prophet mediates between God and man. But for a priest, it's a different type of mediating role, uh, it's really that, not of, uh, in a communicative way, but rather in a religious or spiritual way, serving as a mediator, right? In, in, in a specific sense, not just in the general sense, serving as a religious mediator, but sort of thinking specifically how does that work itself out. Centrally, operating as a religious mediator involves making atonement for sin. Right? And certainly as we think of the Old Testament sacrificial system, right, it's not that the priest truly made atonement for sin. Only, of course, Christ makes true atonement for sin. It's all symbolic, of course. The whole sacrificial system that's a part of that, that uh, covenant made at Sinai, all of the law there, the sacrificial system, it's all meant to be symbolic and point toward Christ himself. Uh, but, of course, the priest, in a symbolic way, made atonement for sin. And that was sort of central in their mediating role as these sort of religious, spiritual mediators. Right? So that was sort of central to the role of a priest. If we think of the role of a priest, it is to serve as this religious, spiritual mediator uh, between God and man, his people, right? Being that mediator, and centrally that involves, of course, making atonement for sin. Right? Why is there the need for this mediator? Well, if we think about it, it goes all the way back to uh, Adam, it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, to the garden and sin. Right? The reality is that there is sin in the world going all the way back to, to Adam and Eve eating that fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They disobeyed God. There's sin in the world. We all share in that sin. 
Uh, we are sinful by our very nature. We live that out day in and day out with acts of sin and rebellion against the Lord. And the result of that is a separation, right? It's not like now we can continue to just be in God's presence and God just sort of will say, oh, I'll just sort of sweep your sin under the rug, no big deal, right? That's not the way it goes, but rather because of our sin, we are separated from God. And so now there is the, the need for a mediator, a religious spiritual mediator, of course, to make atonement for sin. Of course, in the Old Testament, again, that's symbolic, but Christ is the one that that points toward, and he is the true mediator in a priestly way who makes mediation for mankind, who makes atonement for sin. So what we're going to do, we're going to see that, of course, Christ, even as we're talking about this and sort of the role of a priest being that religious mediator, and centrally that means making atonement for sin, probably the light bulb's going off and we can say, oh, you know, already we're thinking, yes, I see where this is going. Certainly we see Christ carrying out that role. Uh, it's sort of Easter season, Good Friday's coming up, and we're going to be thinking right in our heads probably already, well, of course Christ carries out that role of a priest. He's our mediator, makes atonement for sin through what he did on the cross, taking our place, taking our sin. Of course, he makes atonement for sin so that we could be forgiven, of course, through faith in him. And we'll certainly get there. But I actually want to start by looking at the Old Testament. Even before Christ came, before we sort of look at his life, look at the New Testament and see him sort of carrying out this role of a priest, what we're going to see is that in the Old Testament, even before he actually came, looking at passages that speak of the coming Messiah, right? Jesus, who was to come, looking at him way ahead of time and speaking of this Messiah and looking at what he would do, what we already see even way before. Here we're going to be looking at Isaiah, 700-ish years before Christ, already speaking of this Messiah and what he would do. We see the priestly role of Christ himself, of the Messiah, of Jesus. So first we're going to be looking at Isaiah. You can flip open your Bibles there. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, and then we'll read through into chapter 53, verse 12. And this is that well-known suffering servant passage, and I'll read it for us. It says, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. And already here, I'll, I'll sort of pause and interject at this point. Not that we see the language of sort of the priestly role and, and office and making atonement for sin, but already sort of hidden within here is, is a statement pointing toward the cross, pointing toward what Christ would ultimately do. Right? The language here sort of at first glance is that of being exalted, being lifted up in that exalted sense. But very literally, as this sort of points forward to Christ, Christ is, as we know, right, very literally lifted up, raised, hung on a cross, and yet in that, in what would seem to be a great shame to him to be crucified, certainly anyone in that day and age would have viewed crucifixion as this horrible and shameful thing for the worst of the worst, in this thing that would have seemed like the complete opposite of being exalted, in this thing that seemed shameful, yet in that, in Christ's atoning work on the cross, right, that is ultimately to his glory. He is exalted in that and glorified in that. And so there's sort of this hidden statement that's already being spoken here by Isaiah saying, right, this, this Messiah who ultimately will come, he will be exalted, but he'll be exalted and glorified and lifted up by very literally, and very literally being lifted up, raised up on a cross in a way that would seem shameful and yet wondrously so because of what's taking place on the cross, atonement for sin. It will be something that is, that is ultimately to his glory and he will be exalted in it. So it's sort of already pointing toward his priestly work, but let's read on. We'll see it even more clearly. Verse 14, reading on, Just as there were many who were appalled at him, 
His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness, so will he sprinkle many nations. I want to pause there just for a second. There are two potential translations for this. Uh, You'll typically see, so will he sprinkle many nations, or something to that effect. Uh, But it's also possible that it could be, instead of sprinkle, it could be startle. So he will sprinkle many nations, or so he will startle many nations. And there's a good chance if you have some sort of study Bible, there may be some little note there sending you down to the bottom and explaining that a little further. You don't have to look or or read that at this moment. But it certainly could be translated either way. And if we sort of look at the context, right, we could sort of look at it and, and see, make a case in a sense for either perspective. Right here it says that, right, if we sort of read before this, that his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness, you could imagine that the response one might have to him would be uh, to be startled, right? That, that in a sense, such a horrible, this is sort of looking toward the cross and the horrible thing that will take place that will happen to him, right? And of course, certainly his, his body will be uh, abused in all sorts of ways as he's flogged, as he's hung upon a cross, right? In a sense, you could speak of his appearance being disfigured, right? His form being marred. And a natural response could be that to be, in a sense, to be startled by it. And in a sense, it does continue on and kings will shut their mouths because of him. So you could certainly see it potentially being interpreted that way. Uh, but it could also be interpreted, and I'd say generally this is how it's translated, to say that so he will sprinkle many nations. Again, in this act of, of hanging on a cross where he makes a for sin, where we see him being disfigured as it talks about uh, his form being marred beyond human likeness. In this act, he will sprinkle, this is the language of sort of the sacrificial system, the language that is, that is very much a part of the priestly office of making atonement for sin, this language of sprinkling, think of sprinkling of blood to make atonement for sin. I'd say that's, that's very much a way that we could interpret this, to say that in this act of hanging on a cross, making atonement for sin, he will sprinkle right? Many nations. He will make atonement for their sin. That's what's being said there. What I would say is I don't think we have to pick or choose one or the other, right? Why can't even in our language, our day and age now, in any language, right, you can have a play on words and sort of have two intended meanings very much at the same time, and it's a little bit of a word play. And I would say that's probably what's going on here is, in a sense, uh, what's being spoken of here is both at the same time. Yes, based on his appearance and what takes place, there will be sort of a startling effect Uh, that will take place, but at the same time in what he does on the cross, he will sprinkle many nations, and so we see him carrying out this prophesied about Messiah, that he will carry out this priestly office, this priestly work uh, of making atonement for sin. And it goes on, and kings will shut their mouths because of him, for what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. And I want to pause here and sort of go over this verse again, verse 5 here, because again we see this priestly work of this prophesied about Messiah, right? What does it say about him? Sort of paraphrasing this, right? Uh, it says he was pierced for our transgressions, right? So in a sense you have a people here who've sinned, right? They're under judgment, but of course what happens is the punishment falls upon this Messiah who's carrying out this priestly work, right? It says the same thing in, in the next little clause there. He was crushed for our iniquities. Again, we've sinned, we deserve judgment, but the punishment doesn't fall on us, but rather on this Messiah. And then it goes on, the punishment that brought us peace. Again, right, understand, so we've sinned, the punishment falls on him, and, and what's the result is that it brings us peace. And then it closes with, and by his wounds we are healed. Right, this, what's being spoken of here is atonement that is very much uh, part of the priestly office, right? In a sense, you could speak of, of Christ sort of serving as the priest, but also, in a sense, the sin offering itself, the sacrificial lamb as well that makes atonement for sin. He sort of serves both offices, priest, but also the sacrifice itself. And what's being spoken of here is that of this priestly office, the work that a priest carries out of making atonement for sin. Here's Christ, right? We've sinned. Our sin, right, he takes our place, he takes our sin, he takes our punishment, and what's the result, of course, is peace for those ultimately who put their faith and trust in him. This is the priestly work of atonement. He serves as our religious, spiritual mediator, making atonement for sin, carrying out that priestly office. But let's go on. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering. And I want to pause there, right? What, what's being said here? The Lord makes his life a guilt offering, right? This is, again, very much uh, the language of the sacrificial system and, and part of the role of a priest. Priests would offer up the sacrifices, right? A guilt offering, or think sin offering, very similar, certainly, right? And what's being spoken of here is saying that this Messiah, of course, we know it's Jesus. He is the Messiah, he's the Christ, but this is 700 years before he ever came to this earth, and it's saying this Messiah who was prophesied about, who would come, right? What's he ultimately going to do? He's going to be a guilt offering. He's going to be an offering for sin to make atonement for it. Again, this is the role of a priest, uh, it, that's what's very clearly being said here, that this prophesied about Messiah would carry out this role of a priest, the priestly office. It said, so, and though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. 
for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And even there, as it closes, right, this passage that we're looking at, verse 12 here in chapter 53, right, again, it, it speaks of this priestly role, this priestly office of the Messiah. What is he going to do? He's going to bear the sin of many. He will make intercession for the transgressors, right? He's going to serve as this mediator who will make intercession before God, right? And how does he do it? By taking sin, right? Taking the place of sinful man, taking the punishment that sinful man deserves, making atonement for sin, right? And so makes intercession for them and presents, of course, those who trust in him, right? Trust in him and, and the atoning work that he has accomplished on the cross, right? Those who trust in him and have true saving faith Right? Ultimately, they are made righteous in God's sight. They are made without blemish in the sight of God. Uh, and Christ so serves as that intercessor, serves as that mediator who makes atonement for sin for his people. And so we see here, again, even before Christ ever comes, what was expected of him, again, even 700 years way, way, way before the time of Christ, we're already told what he's going to do, sort of the role that he is going to carry out, and it is very much a priestly role. He carries out that role of a priest, serving as that religious, spiritual mediator who's sort of central to that role, makes atonement for sin. And for him, whereas for, of course, uh, the priests think of the Old Testament, that whole lineage, the Aaronic priests, for them it's all symbolic, but finally, for the Messiah, right, in his case, it is true atonement. It's not symbolic like the priests of old, but for the Messiah, it is finally true atonement for sin. But now I sort of want to transition to the New Testament and say, well, you know, let's take a look at the New Testament and what it has to say about, of course, Jesus as the Messiah and this role of priest that he carries out. And if we go to John chapter 1, in verse 29 is the verse that I'm going to read here. This is sort of just as Jesus' ministry is about to kick off. So you even think of sort of uh, on what tone or with, with what sort of statement does Jesus' ministry, in a sense, kick off. And it's this. This is John the Baptist here speaking in this verse. It says, The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Again, this is very much the language of the priesthood, the language of the sacrificial system. That's what he's saying, right? When he says here, oh, this, this Jesus guy, right, he is the Lamb of God, what is he saying? You know, again, this is the sacrificial Lamb. He's saying this is the Lamb, this is the person who will ultimately serve as a, the sin offering that will make atonement for sin. He will carry out the role of a priest. He will go ultimately to a cross, take our place, take our punishment, he will pay for our sin, take that punishment, the wrath of God, and serve as our great high priest, make atonement for sin. Okay, that's what he says. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is saying that this Jesus, he's the Messiah, and what will he do? He will carry out the office of a priest and make, truly make atonement for sin so that we can be forgiven and have life everlasting. But now I want to turn to, to Hebrews. You can flip there if you'd like in your, in your Bibles. This is chapter 4, verse 14, through to chapter 5, verse 6. Probably at this point you're already saying, yeah, you know, I get it, Pastor Steve. Um, you know, Jesus certainly carries out this role of a priest. It's quite clear. We can look at the Old Testament. It's there. We see that even before he came, that's what he was going to do. Just as his ministry is getting kicked off, right, John the Baptist affirms this and says, hey, this guy, he's the Messiah, and here's what he's going to do. He's going to be your great high priest who truly makes atonement for sin. But here in particular, in Hebrews, it's just 
awfully explicitly stated that this is indeed the office that Christ carries out, along with, of course, being a prophet and along with, with being a king as well, certainly having those offices as well, but very clearly explicitly says that Jesus is our great high priest. And so let me read this for us, starting Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Right, right there, explicitly stated, Jesus, the Son of God, what is he? He is indeed our great high priest because he is the one who carried out the priestly office and made atonement for sin. Reading on, though, he says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Again here, not, not that Christ is from the lineage of the priesthood, sort of in the line of Aaron, but he's saying, no, it's even greater than that. He's not one of those sort of priests of the Old Testament, and they sort of do their whole sacrificial system thing, but that's just sort of symbolic. But no, he's a priest in a different order, in the order of Melchizedek, sort of referring all the way back, think of Genesis, sort of time of Abraham. I won't get all into that and sort of sidetrack us. But anyway, fundamentally, the point uh, that's being spoken of here in Hebrews is very clearly this Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, he is truly our great high priest. He is the one who made atonement for sin, carried out that priestly role, that priestly office, and serves in that capacity. And it's reaffirmed uh, plenty of other places in Scripture, but even in Hebrews as well. I'm just going to read quickly Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. It says, For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way. Speaking of Christ here, speaking of Jesus. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. Again, affirming that priestly role, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Again, stating very clearly, Jesus is our great high priest, and centrally, right, what makes him that? Because he is the one who made atonement for the sins of the people, as it says right here. That is central to that priestly role as that spiritual religious mediator making atonement for sin, and Christ very clearly carries that out. And now I want to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. While this doesn't maybe quite as explicitly reaffirm that, that Christ carries out this role of a priest, it certainly does sort of implicitly speak to that. Uh, I'm sort of, after I read it and do a little initial teaching, I, I want to come back to it because it does relate to our application, sort of where we're going with this. But let me read it for us. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
right? So even just there, speaking of, right, the fact that, that God reconciles people to himself through Christ speaks to his priestly role, certainly, but we even will get it a little bit more explicitly toward the end of this passage. So, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And again, this is speaking of that priestly role. What, what's it talking about? Certainly a technical term there would be double imputation, that, that our sin is imputed or transferred to, to Christ. Uh, of course, that's what takes place when we're sort of, when we come to faith in Christ, we're joined with him, uh, united with him, having faith, true saving faith in him, and, and our sin is transferred to him, and he makes atonement for it, pays for it on the cross, but then, of course, his righteousness is imputed or transferred to us, and sort of, we stand before God in Christ's own righteousness, that perfect righteousness that he has, having lived that sinful, uh, sinless, that is, sinless, perfect life, of course, uh, before God. But this is speaking of the priestly role, right? What's going on here is he's saying, right, God made him who had no sin, Christ, he's perfect, uh, no sin, of course, lived that perfect life, and he made him to be sin. He took our sin, put it on him, punished him in our place, right, so that if we come to, to Christ, of course, with true saving faith in him, then, of course, we're forgiven and we receive the righteousness of Christ. Again, speaking to that priestly role of making atonement for sin, taking the place of sinful man uh, and making atonement for sin. But here's where I'm going to want to come back to this. Uh, I'm going to want to come back. I'll sort of put it on the shelf for now, but as we get to application, I'll come back to it. This whole issue of, not really issue, but matter of uh, being entrusted with this ministry of reconciliation, right? Paul here is certainly speaking particularly of himself and his co-laborers in the gospel and saying specifically for them, right, he says, right, God reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Then he says later, uh, he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. But there's the reality, and Paul would certainly affirm this, that all of us who are followers of Christ have a share in this ministry of reconciliation. It's not just sort of those in professional ministry, people like Paul, his co-laborers, but all who belong to Christ are, in a sense, ministers of reconciliation, have been uh, entrusted with this message of reconciliation. And so we're sort we're going to come back to that uh, and talk about that uh, at the end. I know we have one passage left that we're going to look at in 1 Peter, but that's really, I want to save that for application and sort of, at this point I want to, to recap. In a sense, I think we've sort of made it quite clear looking at all sorts of scriptures that Christ truly does carry out this priestly office, this priestly role. Just as last week we looked at Christ and the fact that he serves as a prophet, carries out that office and looked at that and the scriptures backing that up. Today we've looked at scriptures showing that, that clearly he carries out the office of a priest as well. He is that spiritual religious mediator who makes atonement for sin for the people uh, and so clearly does that through what he did on the cross right? Taking our sin, taking our place, taking our punishment, making atonement for sin so all who trust in him might be forgiven and have everlasting life. So we certainly understand that, but then a good question is to say, well, so what? You know, what, what sort of our application? Where do we go from here? And I'd say the first step is to say, well, let's just celebrate Christ's priestly work. The fact that he really did this for us on the cross, that he went to the cross, that he carried out that priestly work of making atonement for sins so that 
we could be forgiven and we could have everlasting life. If he hadn't carried out this role, carried out this office, and served as our great high priest, we'd be stuck in our sin, we'd have no hope, uh, and we'd be under judgment, no way out. End of story. But of course, that isn't how things went, but he did serve as our great high priest, and we ought to celebrate that fact, and we ought to worship him and praise him and give him thanks for being our great high priest. So I'd say that's application point one, but then our second application point is this. This might seem a little unusual to us, but it's actually what Scripture says, and, and we're going to talk about it. But not only is Christ a priest, and in fact, not just a priest, but the priest, Scripture actually says that all of us who belong to Christ, who are followers of his, are in fact priests. And I want to look at this. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, and we'll see what Peter has to say on this matter. Again, 1 Peter 2, 5. Here Peter's uh, writing to the churches in Asia Minor, and so this is what he's saying to these churches, to people who are Christians. He's saying, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, it's not that, right, he very clearly says here, right, for the Christians that he's writing to, the members of the churches that he's writing to, he says, you're a priesthood. You're a holy priesthood. That means you're priests. Now, he's not trying to say you're priests the way those Old Testament priests were, and so you're going to offer up all of these sacrifices, right, involving slaughtering bulls and rams and, you know, you name it, right? That's not what he's trying to say. It's not that's the office that you're going to carry out, and particularly, especially that way. But rather, he is still saying, you are a priesthood, right? You are, you are members of this new priesthood that is the church, God's people. And as a member of God's people, member of his kingdom, you are a priest. And what does he mean by this? I think we have to understand the, the office of a priest, right? We sort of already talked about it, but there are different aspects to it. We sort of talked at the beginning that it involves being a mediator and, uh, between God and man in a religious way, and centrally that, that, that involves making atonement for sin. Certainly Old Testament-wise, that's sort of symbolic, uh, and Christ does the real deal, making atonement for sin. But we can also sort of talk about the role of a priest in sort of a general way, and part of that role is to be one who has been sort of set apart by God uh, to carry out the role of serving before the Lord and ministering before Him in His presence. And then in that, in that capacity, serving before the Lord in His presence, right? Uh, as you think of the Old Testament as they would have done at the temple or tabernacle before the temple was built, right? In that capacity, then they would have offered up sacrifices, not just a sacrifice for atonement for sin, but all sorts of sacrifices that were intended to be pleasing in God's sight. And so I think if we think of the priestly role in sort of that general sense of one who is set apart to this service of, of ministering before the Lord and offering up sacrifices in a general sense, what we realize is that we as Christians, we as those who belong to the Lord, we carry out that role in a sense. Not in the literal sense of slaughtering animals, but we are certainly set apart unto the Lord to minister before him, to serve him. And we are to offer up sacrifices, as Peter says here, but they're spiritual sacrifices. This isn't involving the blood of animals and so forth, but they're spiritual sacrifices. And what are these spiritual sacrifices? I'd say sort of in a general way, it's just offering up our lives in service to the Lord. It's spiritual sacrifices of, of obedience and faithfulness and praise and worship and service, 
right? Sort of the whole of our lives being given over to the Lord in service to Him, worshiping Him, praising Him. These are the spiritual sacrifices that we as God's priests are to be offering up to Him. And certainly a part of this priestly role, in a sense, as God's people is to be holy. Holy in the sense that we've been set apart unto Him, but also holy in the sense that the way in which we are to be living our lives should be characterized by a, a holiness and obedience to the Lord. And so as we think of the fact that we are to serve as priests in reality, and again, not like Old Testament priests, I'm not saying go home and go get some animals and go slaughtering them, don't go doing that, please don't, um, but rather in a different way, in sort of a spiritual way, as we serve as priests in a sense, we are to be living holy lives, we are to be offering up these spiritual sacrifices of obedience and praise and worship uh, and service. And this is part of that role as we think of our application, and again, the first point being that we should just affirm Christ's priestly work and, and certainly be celebrating that and giving him thanksgiving and, and praise and worship for what he's done for us. We also, sort of second point of application, ought to acknowledge that we have a priestly role as well, just as Christ did, immeasurably lesser priestly role than he had, of course, and has, of course, uh, but still nonetheless a priestly role, and we ought to live that out faithfully. But I would say that there's sort of one more aspect to the priestly role, and if we think of the role of a priest, part of it is, is that as that religious leader, part of that role was to, in a sense, be educating the people, proclaiming the truths of God, right? educating the people. You think of sort of the priests of the Old Testament, helping to teach them. You could sort of think of Ezra as a great example of this, teaching the people the law and the truths of God's word, uh, the truth about God, in a sense, uh, and certainly serving to point people to God. And I'd say that's part of the priestly role as the religious leader, to be pointing people to God, to be sort of proclaiming the truth about God. And as we think of ourselves as priests in a sense, again, sort of in a spiritual way in a sense, but as priests unto the Lord, right, part of that role is to be proclaiming the truth about God. The truth about this, as we go back to 2 Corinthians, I told you we would come back to that, the truth of this message of reconciliation that's been committed to us, right? We have been called to be ministers of reconciliation, as, as Paul talks about. I know he's talking about particularly himself and his co-laborers in the gospel, but really he would certainly affirm that all Christians have been entrusted with this message of reconciliation. All Christians have been entrusted with the message of the gospel, and we as priests are to go and proclaim that truth to a world that doesn't know that message, that doesn't understand that, and serve as priests in that way, pointing them, not just proclaiming the truth about God, but also pointing them to God himself and being used by God to draw a people who are far from God nearer to him, and that is part of the priestly role. And so as we think about this, again, sort of coming back to application, our second point of application is really that I want to see us faithfully living out the priestly role that God has given to us to affirm that, yes, we do indeed serve as priests. Again, not like in the Old Testament, in a bit of a different way, but nonetheless, we who are God's people are part of his priesthood. We are truly priests, and that means we ought to be living holy lives. We ought to be offering up spiritual sacrifices, just giving the whole of ourselves, the whole of our lives over to the Lord and service to Him, serving Him, obeying Him, worshiping Him, praising Him, and those are to be, in a sense, our spiritual sacrifices. And then lastly, as well, as we live out this priestly role, we are called to be pointing people to Him, to be proclaiming the truth about God, the truth of the gospel to a people who don't know, who don't understand, 
We are to proclaim to them the truth of the gospel and so point them to him and carry out that role of a priest that God has called us to. And so that's really our challenge. I want us to really faithfully live out our priestly role, all in service to God, his kingdom, for his glory. Amen. And let's pray. Lord God, Lord Jesus, thank you for being our great high priest. If you had not been that for us, if you had not carried out that office for us, we would be steeped in our sin with no hope under your judgment. But fortunately for us, you did carry out that office. You came as the Messiah to be our great high priest to be that mediator, that religious, spiritual mediator for us, between God and us, a sinful, lost people. And as that mediator to go and make atonement for sin so that we might be forgiven, so that we might have life everlasting. And we just want to thank you for that. We want to celebrate you. We want to celebrate what you have done for us as our priest, our great high priest. And even as we think of you in that office of priest that you carried out, we also remember that we have a share in that role. We are priests of yours as well, God. As scripture says quite clearly in 1 Peter, we are called to be a holy priesthood, to live holy lives and to be offering up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable and pleasing in your sight, those spiritual sacrifices of worship and service and obedience and faithfulness and praise. May we day after day be serving as faithful priests, offering up those spiritual sacrifices that honor and glorify you that are pleasing in your sight. And may we also carry out that other role of a priest to be pointing people to you to be proclaiming the truth all about you, the truth of your word, the truth of the gospel, and point people to you, the one true God. And as we live out this role faithfully, Lord, may you use it to bear fruit for your kingdom, ultimately as everything is for your glory. In your name we pray, amen.